0: By the time this hits the parents, there's a sort of, almost a religious fervor that they're up against.
1: Alistair Gunn, also known by his pen name, Angus Fox, is a vice director at Genspec, an organization seeking to broaden the treatment options available for people questioning their gender beyond so-called gender-affirming care. They receive this script from their friends. So when they say, I'm at risk of suicide,
0: this is something they've learned from their friends. Now, we've actually no evidence of that.
1: Alistair Gunn helped inspire parents to share their stories in the new book, Parents with Inconvenient Truths About Trance, Tales from the Homefront and the Fight to Save Our Kids. It's parasitized people's emotions and it's managed to
0: remain as though it's some very respectable, normal field of medicine, as though it's knee replacement
1: or orthodontics or something, and it's not. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Alistair Gunn, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm delighted. Or should I say Angus Fox? You can say either, and my Twitter
0: handle is a sort of portmanteau of the two that got mashed together as well. So
1: there's three options for you. Well, and, and I should mention that because you have written you know, in Quillette and in other places under the pseudonym Angus Fox in the past. And this is actually something very interesting. So I'm, I'll, I'll just give people a bit of a preview here. Um, I read the bulk of the book uh, by parents with inconvenient truths about trans, a whole series of essays. I think it's 75 essays by parents who are somehow in the midst of this issue. And, Basically, all of them are doing it anonymously, and now we have you. You're come you're, You've you've been sort of nominated uh, to to speak about this whole thing, but you're not a parent yourself. So how did you get into this, and how is it that you got the trust of all these parents who are, you know, from everything I've read, in an incredibly precarious situation.
0: Well, have you ever slipped? and fallen and thought oh here i go and i'm going down that happened to me this morning by chance and honestly i fell into this uh backwards in a sort of way i didn't expect any of this to happen i came across a video of very as you say anonymous she was in a video it was a an asymmetrical interview where the interviewer was seen and she was not seen and it was a mother who was simply describing what had happened to her daughter, who had decided to start identifying as male. And it was extraordinary. And I had no idea. I'd never even heard of a woman having a sex change. I I thought that wasn't a thing, Um, much less a teenager. And my first reaction was, I, I felt terribly sorry for her because she was obviously a very you know, normal, decent person who'd been hit by something. And my second reaction was, I happened to be gay. And my second reaction was, we're going to be blamed for this because LGBT is everywhere. There's very much this sense of including transsexual and, and trans people, which honestly I'd never really thought in any depth about. So I reached out to a group of similar parents. I joined a message board which had parents who were similarly experiencing this very strange new phenomenon of an adolescent child developing overnight, seemingly a transgender identity. And eventually they were quite skeptical because this is a community, which at the time was very much under attack and still is, but it's changed. They wish to protect their identities mainly because they wish to protect their children. They think their kids are going to grow out of this and they don't, want them to have this follow them for the rest of their lives. They want them to be able to leave this behind, largely. I think if it weren't for that, most of them would be public. They've been attacked by activists who decry them as transphobic, and so it took a long time for them to trust me. Uh, But they did in the end, and they let me into a meeting, and I heard their stories. Um, and I decided to write them up. So we started something together. It was a very strange moment, but it helped because these parents feel very helpless. They feel ostracized, they feel attacked by society and they need to do something to give themselves some kind of belief that they can resolve their situation for the better.
1: Well, and if there's anything we've learned over the last however many years is how powerful that uh, fear of ostracism is in affecting uh, human behavior. Let, let me jump into this. You're just making me think about it. There's a certain kind of when you I, I read, I think, uh, over 60 of, of these essays. And one of the themes that 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 comes out is that there is a kind of almost like a standard playbook that these kids get pulled into, where they already know the ants they, they know what they need to say, t- and then, the I guess, in some cases, it's therapists, in some cases, it's gu- guidance counselors respond in a particular way. It's like this sort of extensive, almost like coaching exercise to the point where the parents realized at some point that the kids are basically all saying almost exactly the same thing, rote. And, and so so how, how did this happen? well yes so we call that
0: the script and i think from a parent's point of view hearing the script which you've which is written on reddit and tumblr and uh discord in particular those three platforms but other platforms as well now in a way these are just platforms, right? These are just, it could be WhatsApp, it could be just your mobile phone, but though this is the means that these kids are communicating. So it's a generational challenge because people my generation wouldn't necessarily use Discord, for example. To So they, we're in very different spaces and they receive this script from their friends. And I think the best way to think about this script is, it's like if your child found a poem that resonated The feeling is probably real, but the information in it is not real. So when they say, I'm at risk of suicide, this is something they've learned from their friends. Now, we've actually no evidence of that. It's a very complicated and thorny issue, but there's no evidence of that. They tell one another, and they believe it, that they're at great risk of suicide if they don't transition. And I could introduce you to detransitioners who would tell you, I really believed that about myself. I believed if I didn't transition, I would be at risk of suicide.
1: Well, and the, the, the complicating element, of course, also is is that you, if you come to believe that, that probably makes it more true, at the very least, right? So
0: what well, may make certain types of behavior more true, and then those certain types of behavior could, in theory, put you at risk. And it's true to say that there is some elevated suicidality among young people who question their gender. It's also true to say that there's elevated suicidality, according to one study, actually, to a higher degree, among bisexuals. So, you know, it, it now we don't take all bisexuals and say right we must rush you to a doctor now i'm not saying there shouldn't be discussion of these things but that's not necessarily a medical issue and it's certainly not evidence of a bodily problem a physiological problem so these young people present with this script and they read this script and in a sense it's kind of outlining a way that they feel and they could feel that way for many reasons but the information is very often false Um, and it's taken from elsewhere. And so by the time the kind of parents who are writing and talking about their experiences in in Pitt and who've joined Genspect, very often by the time that this that their child actually presents this to them, the reality is that for six months or more, they've been identifying as a member of the opposite sex online. They've been sharing information with people who've been encouraging them to see themselves as transgender who've been telling them that doubt is transphobic. They're very often told the only people who doubt they're trans are trans people, which when you think about it is a cognitive sinkhole because as soon as you think, right, well, am I trans? It's like the ground's gone beneath you and you're trans. Um, There's in fact, a website called Am I Trans? And if you go there, it's just the word yes. Um, So they're existing in this kind of community, which is quite different. From what their parents expect, so by the time this hits the parents it's there's a sort of almost a religious fervor that they're up against that they don't realize how far this has gone in the child's life already, and that's a lot of that is the internet
1: well, okay, so there's a whole section in the in the book uh, a series of essays of something that I frankly. You know, maybe was a little bit aware of. I've been looking at this issue quite a bit for the last at least two years. Um, I wasn't aware of how, I guess, deep this could go. Um, so there's, you know, there's a connection to specific types of pornography. There's a connection to, you know, sort of some kinds of actual sexual predators, ostensibly, that are participating in this. There's a — and a, this kind of the, the the kids get kind of pulled into what you would call the dark web, in in some cases, and I don't know how prevalent this is, but but clearly this has happened to numerous parents.
0: So the dark web is a technical thing, and and one of the stories in this book is a, a young woman who was actually pulled into the dark web. So the dark web is a particular interface using the internet, which is really very sinister. There isn't a way that anyone has come up of keeping young people out of these communities. It literally just says, confirm that you're over 18 and you click. Yes. This is a problem which has been going on now since I was a teenager. and I'm no longer a teenager and I haven't heard a single politician come up with a serious answer to how to do this. And I'm afraid I can't add, I I don't have one. So there's a much broader problem of the sexualization of children but in with this gender identity it's very very clear that there's something which has allowed predatory men to be a lot bolder and to exploit this idea that well the adults around you don't understand your gender identity they don't understand that you're trans i do and that's it's been a disaster and it's an unrolling an unfolding disaster for these young people of both sexes because there are no guardrails. There is no way to keep predatory men out. So one of the stories I wrote about two and a bit years ago in the Quillette was, you know, it was a horrible story. And I won't give the details because I don't, you know, but it was very, very clearly an older man by 15 years interfering, 14 years interfering with a younger man who was pubescent, 15 years old, so, you know, post pubescent Um, and there's something that has afflicted our culture where people can say certain words like, well, you know, maybe this is a trans woman who's advising or helping or understanding where for some reason we then all reroute the normal part of our brain, which says, why is a stranger talking to a child about sex? That's normal. I'm particularly angry about it because there are a lot of people who attack that and they don't realize we'll get the blame for it. Gay people will get the blame for it. So it's, there's a lot of normalization of this that's going on under the banner of LGBTQ. And that makes me extremely angry because there's nothing about being gay, which makes me want to talk to your child or anyone else's child about sex. and yet clearly our culture is giving the other a very different signal
1: well you know that that's interesting because another theme that i noticed um and of course this is also you know by choice of the editors to some extent so i can't you know this is this is uh you know anecdotal but it seems like the gsas uh, organizations within schools are somehow often involved is that is that accurate
0: Yes. So, I mean, GSA, for a start, they did a a nice little bait and switch. So it used to be Gay-Straight Alliance, and then it's now Gender and Sexuality Alliance. So notice the pivot from talking about sexuality to talking about gender and sexuality, which is nicely, smoothly done without anyone having to reprint their stationery. Uh, Particularly young women, I think, are going into these GSAs, and they are being bombarded with ideas that they simply don't need to have. They simply don't need to have. It's not making them happier and it's not making them safer. You know, there's a very uh, brave young woman I know called Helena Kushner, who's a detransitioner. She appeared on Fox News. And she's spoken about this, that if you turn up and you are what, in their dialect, they would describe as cis, which means you're not trans, you're not identifying yourself as non-binary, you don't have anything snazzy going on in the gender department, they're really pretty awful to these young people, particularly, it seems the girls. So if you go to one of these GSA clubs, it's really that essentially they're just gonna push for you to at the very least have the courtesy to be non-binary or pansexual, and frankly, to be trans. It it really is a very strange ideological environment. I was very resistant to a long time for this idea, oh, it's like a cult, because I thought, You know, I've never been in a cult, I don't know, but there is something quite cultish about this mentality. It is a one way street. Um, There's another detransition and some of your viewers may be aware of another very brave young woman called Chloe Cole, who's speaking out about this. She was publicly told on on, uh, Twitter the other day, you're a traitor. Now this is Jonestown stuff. If you believe yourself to be the victim of medical malpractice, that's not treason. You're not betraying a country. You're not betraying there's nothing you're betraying so uh, this mindset is being indoctrinated through schools and through the internet in particular and it was quite interesting in the book there's a title which says yes the internet brackets and school indoctrinated my child and in a way they kind of go together there are parents who have noticed very negative behavior on their children's devices and have done the right thing which is to take the device not only to take the device, but to ensure that other devices can't be, can't come in. In other words, good old-fashioned parenting and confiscating it. Thanks very much. And the schools will replace them. And if the school doesn't, I've heard of schools replacing them. And if the school doesn't replace them, a friend will replace them.
1: Something that struck me as you were talking about, um, you know, the way the so-called CIS. Uh, people are treated in these groups so that reminded me actually of queer theory because in uh, according to queer theory the struggle so to speak is against normal people the the it's the the normal people are viewed as the oppressors right and the the not normal people are viewed as the oppressed and the oppressed are str- the not anyone who's not normal is has to struggle it's part of their kind of duty if you subscribe to that ideology to struggle against the normal so that it, and I don't, I don't understand this deeply, but it strikes me as exactly what what's happening. Yeah, essentially
0: yes, and it's giving them purpose, and it's giving them a sense of identity and community. It's it's really interesting to come back to the. So I'm sure many people watching this will have seen the trans flag. So it's this blue, pink, and white flag. It's very colourful. It was actually invented by a, a paedophile. A lot of people don't know. Uh, there's also a cis flag. Did you know this? There's a cis flag. It's grey it's three different shades of gray, very, very similar shades of gray. So that's a very clear signal, right? Um, You're boring, you're cis. I mean, it even sounds like sissy. It sounds derogatory. Um, And I think that there is clearly a link with queer theory. There's clearly a link with undermining the family. It's also very interesting how suddenly overnight We've totally changed the, what we mean, apparently, or I haven't, but some people apparently have, when they talk about safety and parents. So these children will say, I don't feel safe at home. Now, when I was growing up, if you said I don't feel safe at home, the school would find a social worker, potentially the police. Now, if you did this to these kids these days, now maybe one in 100 of them, they are in that situation, but nearly all of them, they mean, well, I want to use different pronouns. I know that my mother will hit the roof. Of course she will hit the roof. Why wouldn't she hit the roof? And so don't tell. And schools are going along with this saying, yes, okay, well, you may not be safe at home. This is terrible. This is, you know, the, the threshold for cutting parents out. And So, you know, we're right now preparing this gender care framework, which in part will be about education. The threshold for cutting parents out of their children's lives is extremely high. It's malnutrition, it's physical abuse, it's sexual abuse, it's repeated and intense psychological abuse. It's not providing a roof, it's not providing clothes. It is not, I won't agree that Faye is a pronoun and that I'm gonna call you Raven. That's not the grounds to cut, to begin the process actually of, of estrangement because when a school takes that step and comes in and says, well, we're going to decide to break the communication barrier here that's if that child is 15 that could be setting in train a template which could last for many years
1: you know um, again as you're speaking here i i keep thinking about this script that the kids you know find i didn't realize entirely that there's actually the whole script you know you can find on reddit or discord or these other places Right, uh, that 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 you follow. I mean, I was imagining someone sort of coaching you, and what you know, what people are going to say, how you're supposed to respond. You wouldn't exactly say it's a copy-pasted paragraph. So when we say
0: the script, it might it might imply that, but certainly there are certain things which have gone into the water table, as it were, which are totally false. Like for example, forty-one percent of uh, children will attempt suicide if they're not medically transitioned with hormones. This is just. Complete pseudoscience. There are, you can throw a stone in any direction and it will hit somebody who's debunked that. But it's that's what would be one of the things we talk about in the script.
1: You know, it, it 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 just struck me. You know, it's almost like a catechism or something. Do you do you, do you see it like that? Like it? Yeah, it's increasingly It's I fascinating. Do. But the other side. So the other side. There's also apparently a script. So could, because as it happens, you know, and this is, I mean, in so many of these stories, you know, you show up. The parent shows up. At a therapist or a counselor, expecting to get help, and the moment the idea is voiced that there might be some sort of gender confusion, it's like the affirmation script on the therapy or uh, care side kicks in, and it's just—and it seems to be always sort of one path, or maybe not always, but but very strict.
0: Um, And there's this concept of affirmation, which has been pushed in this this very polite and and nice sounding and innocuous way because it sounds like, well, you're just kind of saying, listen, you feel something and I'm recognising that you feel that. But it's not affirmation, it's confirmation. So if you're a young person and you turn up at a hospital and you walk through those corridors and it smells like it smells and you walk past people on trolleys and surgeons and you go into an office and there's a skeleton and, you know, whatever else and a doctor in a white coat says to you, okay, well, I'm going to say he and him and you're a natal female. That's not affirming anything, it's confirming. This is garbage to say that it's affirming. It's clearly an authority figure. It's clearly providing a stamp of social approval. Ditto schools, although to a lesser extent. Um, so when so we know from research out of, for example, Toronto, the research done by uh, Ken Zucker that If you affirm what we call affirmation, if you affirm the child's transgender identity, you are making medicalization more likely. Conversely, if you don't, you are making medicalization less likely. Now, there are people who say, who cares? It's it's all equal. I don't believe that that's ethical. I don't believe it's ethical to say intervening medically and not intervening medically should be put on an equal par. It's an, an absurdity to me. And I think to most
1: people. Well, you know, you're just reminding me of something else, Alistair. And that is, there's one essay in here that I thought was fascinating and very thoughtful and thought provoking. And that was simply There's no such thing. I don't, this wasn't the title, but this was the thesis. There's no such thing as a trans kid. What's your reaction to that? So my reaction
0: to that is as a trained linguist, what's trans an abbreviation of? If it's an abbreviation of transsexual to mean somebody who has medicalized the body to appear a member of the opposite sex, then very unfortunately, and I say that with no apology, there are trans kids. I don't think they should be interfered with, but they exist if we're using it to talk about somebody like Jazz Jennings who has uh, been medicalized um, to appear as though female. So if we're using it to mean transsexual, it's not a matter of opinion or philosophy. It's it's simply a matter of what has happened in the medical system. If we're using it to mean transgender, I would agree. I would further say I'm not sure there's any such thing as a trans person, although I can see that it's a useful descriptor. I'm much more comfortable saying trans to mean transsexual because we're talking about something which is observable, which has happened, which is part of a historical record. Certainly, it's a terrible thing to say there's such a thing as a trans child, because for all sorts of reasons, it's, aside from anything else, it's deeply homophobic. Most young people who have cross-sex ideation will move through it and will turn on, turn out to be same-sex attracted. That's the fact of it. You can find different statistics from different studies. Um, but we think most is a fair statement. And if it's not most, it's a plurality. Um, so to my mind, I think there's a whole problem with the idea of gender identity theory. And Genspect rejects gender identity theory. We do not believe that you are a man because you have some internal man feeling. At the same time, we should have compassion for people who have distress over these issues. But there's a real problem with concretizing that, particularly in a young person. And in a young person, what you're doing is you're actually foreclosing their options. You're you're, you're taking very many paths and you're closing them down. And... There are different views. There are views that say, "Okay, well, we should continue with pediatric transition, but it should be made clear that you're closing off all sorts of paths in life." I reject that because I don't think children are mature enough to make those decisions. It's that simple.
1: And and that's what I understood, you know, from this from this essay that the the, the argument, as I, as I understood it, was simply, you know, a, a kid. Thinks can think there are all sorts of things along the way, and that is actually part of being a kid. And so, you know, and later in life, after thinking a lot through, maybe you'll make some decisions about that, right? But you're not going to be doing it when you're 10 or, or five or three in some cases, or even 15.
0: Jan, yeah, if, if you had said to me when I was 40, I truanted a year of PE, I worked out that I could tell both. They split the year alphabetically and I worked out I could lie to both PE teachers and I hit for a year. So I didn't have to do PE. And the reason I did that is because I I had this, one of these kind of issues where I didn't think I was a girl. I just was terrified of being in male company, terrified. So much so that I truanted for a year, which was very much out of my character. I was a very good boy i never got attention. I got away with it. You don't encourage a boy who feels like that and say yeah you're right you're inadequate and you don't do that to a girl either
1: you know the other the other thing and i think there might actually be some statistics that have been developed around this but it seems like a signif- from these essays a significant portion of the kids are somehow Autistic or on the autism spectrum, which is also associated with being very suggestible. So, in other words, you know, in this kind of internet reality, you know, I guess you, you easy prey with that. I don't even know if that would be right to say, but it kind of feels like that.
0: Well, there's some evidence that if you're autistic, your development is, is different. You may not hit full brain maturity. It, it seems to be around a three year lag. So it seems to be more full brain maturity comes possibly around-ish 28 rather than around-ish 25. It's also, there's a period in child development, depends on the child, but let's say kind of 11-ish, that sort of age, where children start to respond quite differently around sex, around natal sex, that they suddenly think, oh, I'm a boy and the boys are doing this and the girls are doing that and they suddenly sort quite differently and and interact quite differently. Whereas before a lot of the time kids, you know, that you can get along with mixed company quite easily. Autistic children, very often that whole phase can be quite different and it can result, for example, in a young woman feeling it's much easier to make friends with boys. And she may have real difficulty making friends with girls until she's 14, 15, 16, Who knows? It could be later. Now, the autistic mind, who knows where the autistic mind goes with that? But there's one place it's very likely to go if you've had a whole schooling of being told you might be a boy. Um, And you think, well, I only get on with boys. And I don't understand the way that girls interact with one another because female... You know, female interaction at that age is quite different. The bullying is different. Autistic girls can be really hit by female bullying and not understand it. And so a lot of these children, that they're in that situation. And our culture is telling them, this is evidence that you're a man. Which, of course, it's not. The, The other big issue with autism is... At time of publication, there isn't a major society which is is, uh, representing either autistic people or their parents or anything really to do with autism, which has actually recognized that there is a problem here. There are societies which have recognized that autistic people are more likely to transition, but they haven't recognized that very often this is accompanied with severe distress, um, avoidance of the real problem, self-harm sometimes things like eating disorders as well it's just presented as some people are trans some autistic people are trans there's no connection here so we're waiting for an organization which has really got some infrastructure and has the support of autistic people in some way to come forward and actually say there's a problem here because there clearly is and there clearly needs to be a lot more research.
1: Well, so now I'm thinking about another theme that, that occurs um, in the book, which is um, multiple other psychiatric comorbidities associated with, and again, and actually we should actually cover this because gender dysphoria was a new term. It used to be uh, gender identity gender. disorder. Sorted believe- GID. Yes. Right, right. Don't get too
0: stuck on gender dysphoria because that's probably going to go out of the window in a year or two as well. So the, I think we'll have a new name for it soon. I don't know what that will be, but that seems to be the way things are moving.
1: It, what, what struck me about it is, if indeed it is the case, and I and I, I do believe there's even some studies that show this, um, children that have uh, gender identities or gender dysphoria have multiple other psychiatric conditions concurrently. The approach, the, there's this one-size-fits-all approach, affirm, so to speak, and, and the, the affirmation train. All this happens without those things actually being dealt with. And that, that feels like, a you know, it actually strikes me as a, as a horrific reality probably for a lot of people that are suffering from potentially multiple issues.
0: And very often, not only are they not dealt with, but you you find parents receiving convili- uh, conflicting information in the same building. So one of the first parents I encountered on this had been interacting with eating disorder services for some time, unfortunately, in her son's case, and it was very serious. And the whole modality of treating eat- uh, an eating disorder is you have to impress upon the child... Um, you are not making decisions in your best interests. And therefore, we are laying down the law and there are some things which are gonna happen. And you know, families go to extraordinary lengths. People even, you know, if you're dealing with bulimia, for example, people take the bathroom door off its hinges so that you can't vomit without everyone seeing. This is the lengths people go to. So these clinics know fine well that you don't just turn around to a child and say, well, look, you know what's in your best interests. Now, this mother I interviewed Um, A long while back now, her son had been struggling with uh, an eating disorder for a long time. They said he then developed gender dysphoria, so there's a whole conversation to be had about this diagnostic, went to a clinic within the same building, and they essentially told him, well, uh, that's really, your desire to take uh, estrogen is nothing to do with your desire to minimize your body. Now, this is clearly absurd. Oestrogen stunts your growth Um, and an eating disorder is the desire to minimize the body. And so this was in the same building that her son is being told you cannot make decisions for yourself because of a comorbidity. So another existing problem which the parent is actually doing the right thing, seeking to address, taking seriously. And then the other people who frankly, there's a question about whether they are medics or whether they're just activists are really totally undermining that advice. And we see this, so you talk about comorbidities, we see this with um, ADHD, so attention deficit things, where there are protocols around how to help children like that, which do not involve saying you're always right, do what you want. Um, We see that with Uh, There's certainly elevated rates of obsessive compulsive disorder in this population. There's also something which uh, people are talking about a little bit more and may explain a lot of what you see in the media um, on this issue, which is there's elevated rates of narcissistic personality disorder. There also seem to be elevated rates of... um, Borderline personality disorder, which is so, these are there's lots of different conditions here, but none of this is being recognized. So, essentially, you always hit the same cognitive brick wall, which is, well, that's got nothing to do with the fact you're trans, and it does for these young people. There's, there's no question that it does, um, and very often they say that themselves.
1: Tell me a little bit about you know this term gender dysphoria. Because you uh, you said it's going to disappear at the same time we hear it you know constantly and again it's, it's it's tied with a very very specific you know as I said almost script of interventions.
0: The, the authorities who are really evangelizing this do have a habit of renaming this condition every now and then, it's like a spring clean, if you like. Um, so it used to be called gender identity disorder. There are different ways of defining um gender dysphoria they are all deeply worrisome in my view because they include things like um preferring toys associated with the other sex now to my mind a little two-year-old or three-year-old girl who likes trains not dolls tells us very little it may tell us she's more likely than the average woman when she grows up to work on an oil rig. So a lot of this these diagnoses when you look at these diagnoses they're pretty regressive in many ways and they're not terribly accepting of those of us who were a bit different in some way maybe because you know we'll turn out to be gay or whatever it might be. Um so in a lot of senses, and then you take the script as well. So you, you you think about the influence of the script. The script is not just what's presented to parents. The script is also what's presented to, let's say, the family doctor. I feel this way and this way and this way. It's not to say they're lying, it, but it's a script. So wh- uh, the way that that impacts the diagnosis is there are all sorts of things going on underneath this blanket we're calling gender dysphoria from highly distressed young people who are deeply disembodied and alienated from their own sex and frankly at risk through to young people who really want to be big on TikTok, so they're going to be non-binary and there's nothing wrong with them at all there's also you hear young people using this phrase dysphoria and they'll say things like um had a fight with my friend and then I got really dysphoric no you didn't you got sad and that's fine because I get sad if I fight with my friends I'm sure you do it's not a medical condition there's a huge amount of pathologization it's in our culture and it's also among these kids they're almost addicted to finding things wrong with themselves or perhaps not wrong but unique about themselves which nobody else can understand in this quite sort of secretive way and i worry in all of this so one of my worries is i don't want young people to fall out of this vicious sort of trans activism into some kind of other identitarianism because they have some other kind of victim minority label i think we need to urge them to look higher into the landscape than that you know rather than just trying to find another way to suffer
1: there's two things that are coming to mind one is i don't want to forget you you've you've mentioned genspect a number of times we haven't actually told people what genspect is it's kind of a remarkable organization so i want to go into that oh, actually let's let's just do that right now
0: so genspect is 2 and a bit years old and we were formed as an alliance of parent groups and people like me who supported them who uh, because there wasn't really an international group which was really cutting through. Since then we expanded, um, we did some events for detransitioners so that people were more aware of detransitioners. We issue guidance and uh, platform people in the media, and various things, but our big new project is essentially, it's kind of twofold. One is it's to go all around the world saying, you don't have to medicalize. If you feel this or that inside, you can do all of that without hormones and without surgeries. There are There is a way to get through this without changing your body. And then the other part of our mission is to essentially lay that out in a, in a framework that can, is accessible to members of the public so it goes beyond just a clinical help for these young people, and it goes into what should schools do? How do schools accommodate this horrible issue where there are young people who feel like they want to, you know, compete in sport as a member of the opposite sex. Now, our argument to that is, well, you can't. However, you could um, conceivably create some kind of third space or third competition if you wanted to, if you felt like it was worth doing. Um, So that's our mission, is essentially to try and provide an alternative to this, that Allows everyone to see what we've been sold: this idea that the only way to help trans people is through medicine is wrong. And there's another
1: view. So another thing that has come out, in through reading these letters, is parents are you know, these parents are kind of acutely aware of the fact that there's a whole system, you know, a, a whole industry, if you will. I think there's a few cases where it's uh, uh, compared to the opioid. Uh, industry, you know, basically the way that that opioids were sold to doctors as being, you know, not addictive when it when it was known that they were incredibly addictive. Similarly, you have some of these, you know, incredibly, you know, destructive drugs. In one case, I think Lupron, it's it's used to chemically castrate sexual predators, um, is actually used as a as a blocker, I guess. Um,
0: Puberty blocker and yeah. and it's just worth adding in off-label as well, which is a, a
1: medical way of saying completely at your own risk. And I re- I'm just remembering, and maybe we'll we'll, we'll bring this up. I uh, the 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 change in the number of gender clinics around the country, you know, is again there's been this unbelievable explosion. So it's become, you know, sort of industrialized, if you will.
0: Mm. Well, and we're now that the people who've been looking at these things have not had you know, there's been various projects over the years, but we're now seeing a little bit more muscle brought in. So we've seen uh, my colleague, Robin Respo from Reuters has started to look into all of this in a bit more detail at kind of really looking at the insurance claims going on. There's a huge problem with lack of data, but there there are also some very interesting themes. So you mentioned a number of gender clinics. What a lot of people don't know is that the, the real estate link a lot of those were AIDS clinics. They were HIV AIDS clinics, which were needed. We now have a lot better information about that. It's not seen as a massive pressing social crisis. People know how to protect themselves from HIV AIDS. I'm sure there's still a lot to be done, but we're not where we were in the eighties. So if you're a gay rights organization and you're sitting on to it's kind of like when the pizza hut went bust, right? You're sitting on top of all of this property thinking, hmm. What am I going to do? So part of the socioeconomic, if we want to talk about the industry and the socioeconomics of it's like, well, creating gender clinics, you've already got the property. There are some kind of connections there. We think that this year that this industry is going to go, it's going to cross the threshold into the two, from the one point something billion to the two point something billion. None of these people is working for charity. This is the key point. They go out there and they say their little messages about they're saving trans lives and they put little hearts and unicorns and rainbows. These surgeons aren't charity workers. They're being paid. The people who hold the stocks and shares in organizations like Howard Brown Health, they're not doing it out of the goodness of their heart. This is an industry. And I think that It's an abnormal industry. It's an industry which has managed to rig all sorts of quite deeply emotional things in order to serve itself by bringing statutes of limitations down to absurdly short lengths. So that if you regret your surgery after three years in some states in the United States, it's too late. Three years. So you've got the rest of your life with a body part that you don't want And You get three years. I mean, honestly, I think I can see things in my kitchen which have a longer warranty than that. Um, So it's, it's parasitized people's emotions, and it's managed to remain as though it's some very respectable, normal field of medicine as though it's, you know, knee replacement or orthodontics or something and it's not it's it's operating in a very very strange way.
1: Let's just talk about some practical things. Again, I you know for anyone that is really interested in viewing and I think you've put it really well, the parents' perspective on how this unfolds. And I might add some of these stories are so harrowing because they kind of some of them are people who actually kind of believed in it. And, and just only to have, you know, the scales sort of pulled from their eyes forcibly almost, right? I, I mean, but but also kudos to those people, because that can be an incredibly difficult thing for people to do, as as I understand. But so so why don't we just offer a few things? Like, first of all, what would be some of the warning signs that a parent might just sort of watch for? Because in a lot of these cases... You know when the moment the parent becomes aware of something is you know there's been some weird behaviors it's unclear they're trying to give the kid their distance, but then it turns out there's been half a year or a year of this you know internet porn grooming scenario happening and if, and the kid has already changed how, is that, is that, how how do you how do you deal with that
0: It's a little bit tough because if you have a teenager the the idea that a normal teenager is fine and that you're not going to have any problem is kind of laughable, right? So you've always got something to navigate, but there does seem to be a common experience where for three to six months before the announcement in the script, the child does seem to become quite inward. And I would urge parents to be authoritative, which is not to say authoritarian, but it's, you're not your child's friend, your parent and look at the screens. And you can say, I've noticed you're not happy. I wanna see what's on your screen. And you can say, I want your login. I want your login detail. I want your password. You know, this is my house. I bought this phone, if necessary. I'm only doing, I'm not trying to belittle you. I know that you're a teenager, but I'm doing this because normally I would give you some freedom. I have noticed that you are unhappy and I want to see what you're up to uh, because I care. That would be, I think, the advice that I would give is to, It's a lot of this is about the screen.
1: One of the parents I remember talks about that she didn't want to go full Hungarian, so to speak, because in the group there was a very, you know, a, sort of a, a mom that that you know just took, basically got rid of all those screens uh, completely, and yeah. and you know took a very very firm line. But I, it feels like you kind of have to, especially when there's you know the 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 these screens, you know, even when you're not talking about this issue, are incredibly addictive, right? And so you know and the and the kids are saying things like you know you're persecuting me I feel threatened you're 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 taking away my my lifeline and it, and they legitimately feel like that because they're addicted right so it's it, it must be very difficult to deal with
0: it must be difficult to deal with and we are parenting I say we, I'm not a parent, but as a generation, like the people I know who have kids, it's a very, very different thing because of this, because of the the internet and because of the, the whole digital relationship around which I don't even think we've necessarily got the vocabulary we need to start understanding the way that these kids are interacting. But I think there is a common theme that a lot of parents who very sadly did not manage to, Stop their children from medicalizing, or indeed salvage the relationship. A lot of them, if you said, "What would you have done differently?", they would have said, "Internet. I would have been a lot tighter. If not the full Hungarian, then you know, there's all sorts of options. You can have devices in shared spaces. You can turn off the uh, the wireless, the the." you know, the mobile router at night. And if of course you don't have data, so you can limit the data on your child's plan. If there is any data, that's an option. So there are things that you can do to stop the child using the internet um, without fully taking the phone. But I think in general, I would err on the side of being non neurotic, not paranoid, but cautious about what is going on in online communities.
1: No, absolutely. And then and then you have to watch for, you know, other people kind of passing the devices as you as we talked about earlier. Alistair, this has been a absolutely fascinating conversation for me. Um any final thoughts as we finish?
0: Um buy the book, read the book. Um, read it with an open mind, read it with an understanding that um you're looking at parents who are from like everything from the, the truest, bluest household in the United States through to uh, red states through to people from all over the world. So it's very, very, it's actually diverse, not pretend diverse like we have nowadays. It's the old kind of diversity. Um, support Genspect. Um, and I would say if there is somebody watching this who's going through this, no matter what age your child is, or it might not be your child, it might be your parent, it could be anyone in your family, don't suffer with it alone if it's making if it's giving you, you know, distress in your life, there are people that you can talk to and who will help and who will fight your corner.
1: Well Alistair Gunn, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Thank you very much, yeah. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you all for joining Alistair Gunn and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Janja Kjalik. Mm-hmm.